I know summer's just about over, but it isn't over yet. We've got a few waning weeks left to squeeze out a few sparks, maybe cram a grease-like romance in there or take one last trip. Do it. Do it before fall comes. Get out there. And you can also finish the season with one more summer read. And I've got just the book for you. Mine. That's right. <laughs> My young adult novel, Malro and the Midnight Organ Fight, is out now in paperback. I'm looking at it now, and I'm blown away by the sheer portability of it. The hardback was huge, but the paperback, you can take it anywhere. <laughs> I'm acting like the hardback was the size of an anvil, but you get the point. Paperbacks are easier to travel with. At least they are for the purpose of this introduction. Malro and the Midnight Organ Fight is a novel about two teen detectives trying to solve a series of murders one particularly bloody summer in San Francisco. It's like Sherlock Holmes by way of Rick and Morty. It's fast, it's fun, it's dark, and there's murder. What better way to end the summer than with murder? Order it from your local indie bookstore. I know, Amazon is convenient. But do you really want to keep sending Bezos to space? Of course you don't. Unless he promises to stay there. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of Sweet Nobody, a band which features my guest today on the program, Joy Deo. Let me tell you a little bit about Sweet Nobody and Joy Deo. Well, it's hard for me to think of a more charming band than Sweet Nobody. The Long Beach Quartet's new album, We're Trying Our Best, is the follow-up to their debut, Loud Songs for Quiet People. And it's a confident step forward that proves this is a band to keep your eye on. Filled with infectious hooks, rushing spry melodies, prowling bass lines, a touch of surf guitar, and heartbeat-perfect drum fills. The music of Sweet Nobody is at once familiar and intimate. So much so that when you hear their songs, you feel like you already know them. The key to all that is the voice of Joy Deo. Her sonorous delivery is smooth and steady, and she knows how to take the corners of a pop song and glide around them with dexterity and ease. Now, life has not been easy for Joy in the past few years, and she talks about that at great length in this interview. The bliss of pop music combined with the physically taxing task of living with daily chronic pain are, frankly, the two most dominating elements in her life, and she speaks about that combination much better than I can, so I'll leave that to her. 
Meanwhile, we're trying our best is a stone-cold pop wonder. It's fast and thoughtful and smart, and the lyrics are diaristic and personal, but at the same time, decidedly universal and very inviting. Look, pain is personal. Of course it is. But it's also omnipresent, and it includes every living person on this planet. We've all experienced it in one way or another. And let's face it, we're all trying our best to get through it, aren't we? Of course we are. It's really all we can do. So enjoy this chat. It's a good one. With Joy Deo of Sweet Nobody, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. pretty prolific songwriter in general um I would say if I if I like go to my husband and say I am in a rut like I haven't written a song in like two weeks (laughs) he'll he'll be like come on but usually yeah like I write a song every couple weeks at least and I try to give myself projects to do that are just kind of learning how to work within like creative parameters that I've set for myself just kind of as a challenge I like to do that there seems to be a real feel like an aesthetic feel for the band where you know in the old days if you I hate saying the old days because it refers to when I was a kid but like (laughs) like a smith's 12 inch you didn't even need to see that it was a smith's you knew before you even saw the name the smith's right Mm -hmm. Um, yeah like a 4AD album, like there was an aesthetic, there was a feel, it's like a Cocteau Twins record mm-hmm. or like a Go-Betweens album. Like you could just tell. And it seems to me like that you've cultivated a similar aesthetic um, for the band. Is that, am I reading that right? Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of came about naturally. Just it's in a way, it's kind of just a marriage of my style with my husband, Brian's style. Brian plays drums in the band and um, so like I grew up in a really conservative home and like I didn't listen to secular music really and um, I played classical violin Wow. Um, and sang in church choir and stuff so I grew up with a really like melodic sensibility of like wanting to write really strong melodies and wanting to have a lot of harmonies in my songs and when I had started you know, when I had started songwriting and was like just learning how to record and I hadn't really, you know, I wasn't like as proficient on piano or guitar as I became later, I would use my voice to layer parts that I was hearing in my head. Um, So that part came about, like all the harmonies came about because that was just kind of how I got my ideas out in the beginning. And then, you know, my husband grew up in Huntington Beach and like, banging on the drums in like a crappy garage band and just being loud and playing like fast music. (laughs) So when we started working together, he would take everything that I wrote, which was like very melancholy and melodic and, you know, like I, 
had been sitting in my basement listening to Sarah McLaughlin for, you know, <laughs> all day long or whatever and being like, yes, I'm in my feelings, you know, and he would just take it and like make it faster and make it louder. And eventually I feel like our styles just kind of met in the middle and that's when we started making stuff. I feel like that's sort of like indicative of our sound. Was there, it sounds like there's a lot of, there was a lot of religious music in your house growing up. Yeah, yeah, there was for sure. Where was the break for you? Like, where did you make the left or right turn? My brother is seven and a half years older than me. And he came home from college with a Radiohead album one year. And I was like, what is this? And then that became, you know, my study music and it just kind of went from there. And then I had like joined a, a band in high school and they would, you know, the boys would make me mix CDs and be like, I'm going to, you know, show you Elliot Smith or I'm going to give you like this compilation of the best Simon and Garfunkel tracks or, you know, whatever it was. And that was really kind of how I got into more music like that. Was that a a strange transition for you? Did you feel kind of, did you feel okay about, it felt very natural or did you feel you were leaving something behind? I don't know if I felt like I was leaving something behind. It just kind of felt like I was growing and um, adding to what I knew, which I think at, it, at first it could be scary just because I, I feel like, you know, whatever I'm listening to in the moment is going to make its way into my work somehow, like influentially. And I think that's a good thing. For a long time, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let myself listen to anything like around the time that uh, I was trying to write something. Because mm. I was like, I don't want to be influenced by anything. But then, you know, I got married and Brian has like a, an extensive collection of vinyl and like we have an entire wall of CDs and I just got into I was just like put on anything just put on anything I want to hear it all you know and I've heard so much music I wouldn't have otherwise picked up on because I tend to like obsess over one album or one song like I'm like, I'm going to listen to two albums in the car today and it'll be like, I'll put on an album and I'll listen to the same song like 10 times in a row. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm not a good music fan in that way because I get, I have a very small, you know, small world sometimes. That's why I need Brian to expose me to other things. <laughs> no, you're a great music fan because I think that a music fan does that. They want to sort of like, you know, get get sort of exposed to the magic over and over and over again that's that sort of that pop thrill that you would let wash over you yeah and I mean I did that I would do that in high school too like I would listen to the same you know like I'd listen to amnesiac on repeat for like five hours while I was doing internet school and my dad would be like make it stop <laughs> it's so depressing but then pretty soon it was like maybe I actually like this band and like he started listening to a lot of the music that I had been listening to and that he had initially complained about pretty soon it was like hey dad where's that cd of mine <laughs> where's amnesiac yeah I think that the and and it sounds like your it sounds like your parents were were not resistant to you branching out 
to different kinds of music? No, I mean, I think they just were kind of like, whatever, we had vinyl when we were teenagers and like listened to all kinds of music and I think they were cool with it. They like have loosened up, they've loosened up a lot about that kind of stuff over the years. There is a kind of charming um, pop element to what you do. And there's also a kind of a melancholic part of it as well. Yeah. Uh, is, so do you, do you find yourself straddling that world, that sort of happy, sad kind of? Yeah, I, t- I, I tend to describe it as like bubblegum music with graveyard lyrics. Yeah. Um, I think because when I first started writing songs, I didn't, I was A of all like suffering from depression and I was just like, oh, I need to, I need to get these feelings out of me. Um, and so everything I wrote in the beginning was just like, so like maudlin and sad. And I mean, not that that's bad. I really like was connecting to that. It was kind of my form of journaling in that time. And um, then as things went on, I just got bored. I got bored of writing like unrequited love songs. And, you know, I think part of it was just becoming more confident in, you know, playing instruments that I hadn't played before. And I started, you know, I started taking guitar lessons and I married a drummer and it was just like, I had more options and I, I just was bored. I wanted to play, I wanted to do more fun things, but still talk about like the things that get to me. Did you know that you were depressed at the time or were you writing things and going, wow, that's dark. Were you even surprised by what was coming out? I think I knew that I was depressed, but I don't think I knew how depressed I was. Um, When I was a senior in high school, I grew up in Minnesota. And when I was starting my senior year, my parents were like, we're gonna sell your childhood home that you have always lived in and move to California. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I don't wanna do that. And so I wound up living with, I stayed behind and I wound up living with some friends of ours who were very gracious to like take in a 17 year old who didn't know what the hell she was doing. Um, And I was like doing internet school, which is like, I had no kind of accountability or motivation to do it. I had been like a straight A student forever. And I was just like, my family is gone. I'm all alone in this world. I was like working 25 hours a week and doing school at 17. And like, (laughs) I didn't have a car. I would like walk. It was super cold that winter. I think it was like 25 degree below zero wind chills. And I would walk to work (laughs) because I didn't have a car. And my coworkers would drive around looking for me when they knew I had a shift coming up. But there was like a space of time every morning where our friends would leave for work before, I think I worked at like noon or something. So I would like, as soon as I heard the door close in the morning, I would come out of my room and sit down at the piano. They had like this out of tune piano. And like, that's really when I started writing songs because I just had the time and nobody could hear me. And I'd had, I had had to quit taking violin lessons because I couldn't get to my teacher. So it really just kind of all happened at once. 
And was internet school, so you left your high school? Yes. I mean, it was an offshoot of my high school, but I always had really bad social anxiety. And I usually had friends that were older than me. So I just, I wanted out. I was, I mean, I'm sure I was depressed in school too. And I would just come home and cry every day and be like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then when I left, I started hanging out with like a bunch of kids who were, you know, two or three years ahead of me in school. And we, we made it, formed a band and it was like, finally, I have, you know, I have like a core group of people and I don't feel so alone, you know? Did social anxiety, I just, I'm only asking because I think it's really good for people who have this um, <clears throat> to hear how you, how you dealt with it, but did social anxiety, how did it present itself in, at 17? I would say just walking down the halls being so self-conscious, like being so aware of every single thing that I would do or say and like what I was wearing and how I looked and what my hair looked like and like just feeling like I wasn't allowed to exist or like somehow I was this person apart that was on the outside looking in and everybody else understood how to be normal, but somehow I didn't, you know? And I did come from like a really quirky, artistic family and we were living in a an incredibly small town you know and it was just not a lot of you know cultural variety or anything it was just like I just I would just walk down the hall sweating like I would wear my jacket every day just so people wouldn't see that I was like sweating through my shirt or like if I had to read something out loud in class I would be like okay, I'm counting which paragraph is gonna be mine. And I'm practicing reading the paragraph ahead of time. And I'm reading all the words to make sure there's nothing in there that I can't pronounce. <laughs> and then it would get to be my turn and I'd be like, and you, yes, okay. <laughs> you know, it's just like, that's not, that's not something you want your friends to know or maybe they're not even your friends, but like, that's not something you wanna like advertise to your peers that you're like, barely handling life, you know? You just have to pretend you're fine. Which becomes its own strenuous action. Oh yeah, yeah, it's way too much. Like, it's way too much to ask of somebody who's so young and inexperienced and even people who are, you know? It's hard. It I don't fun. know if I've ever really like gotten over it, but I've practiced, I would say. Yeah, because you're dealing with like anxiety and then you have anxiety that someone's going to know about your anxiety. Completely. It's like a loop. It's yeah, uh, it's like an infinity mirror. And it's just like, OK, you're just talking yourself into a corner and getting more, more and more afraid. But, you know, well, I'm, I am curious about how, like you were saying, like you're not really sure that you're done with that. But how what are the coping mechanisms that you came up with to make life more bearable? That's a great question. I, one thing I do is I write songs about it. Um, I talk to people about it because I've realized that like a lot of the, a lot of what makes something like that scary is that it's, you've internalized it and it just becomes like larger than life within your mind. And when you talk about it to somebody, it just, 
takes it back down to size or you find someone who's like, I go through that all the time. It's totally understandable. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be afraid. Um, also, you know, I feel like if medicine helps you go for it. Um, I take like lavender pills sometimes. Like I took a lavender pill before, uh, before this call. Um, just things like that. But some of it is just kind of like, I just have to make myself do things. Which, which I totally understand. Um, and this might sound like a really sentimental question, but does it help that you have somebody in this world who totally loves you? Like, does, did marriage clarify some of that anxiety? I would think it would. Absolutely. I, <laughs> I joke with Brian sometimes, like, I was so like before I was married, I was so preoccupied with like trying to find the right person and like so worried, like that, so worried I would miss it. Like that was one way that like anxiety manifested itself for me that A of all, like I couldn't act like a normal human being in front of people that I liked because I was just like so in my head about it. But also, you know after we got married, I was like, what do I worry about now? <laughs> like, I don't, I feel so okay. And it feels weird. And there, I feel like there was probably a period of a couple years where I was just like, what is this feeling of peace, you know? And to just have somebody who's like, who knows it all, you know, there's nothing that I hide from Brian. Like we talk about everything and he just never ever judges me for it. And it's just freeing. And, and just out of curiosity, just, I mean, just biographically, cause I'm just kind of interested. So then at what point did you go, well, maybe California does sound like a pretty good idea. <laughs> maybe I will head out there. <laughs> when I was flunking out of internet school and my parents were like- In the freezing cold. Yeah, I mean, they were like, all right, the experiment is over. I think for, I think it was like a total of seven months that I was, you know, home and I, you know, wound up finishing school out here. So I tried, it was a failed experiment, but that's okay. Yeah, but I feel like that it really does reveal something about you that you are, that you were willing to do something that made you uncomfortable because that, that wasn't plan A, right? I mean, that's, you just are like, oh, this is what I'm gonna do. And you really stuck to it. Yeah, I, I don't know if I, I guess I'm a stubborn person in my own way. I'm a very persistent person. Like if I have an idea in my head, it will happen. Even <laughs> if it takes, <laughs> even if it takes a long time, if I'm committed to an idea, I will, I will find a way for sure. I'm guessing you're also very patient. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Mostly I have to be patient with myself because it's like my head, my mind is so busy all the time. And then there's the other part of me sitting there like, okay, well, when you're simply ready, we can tackle this one thing at a time. <laughs> well, it's interesting to think about you know, I teach college and I have a lot of students who have such bad anxiety that they will literally say to me, like, can you please not call on me in this class? Yeah. And, and I, and of course, I, I, of course I, I won't, I won't call them if they ask me to. And, um, 
and you know they're adults they can they can mm -hmm. advocate for themselves and i completely respect that and but it's cool. a very real thing but yeah you absolutely. have chosen a, a, a profession in which you are being looked at right mm -hmm. in which you are performing it's a performative art yes um, it's an art where there are photo shoots there are live concerts there are people that are gazing at you in a way mm -hmm. That is that I think would make anybody uncomfortable to be to know that you're being looked at, right? How yeah. has that been for you in terms of that whole thing? I am pretty much constantly terrified. <laughs> I'm like, why did I choose to do this with my life? <laughs> right. But it's like this one thing that I really, really love to do. Like it's the thing I love to do more than anything else. And I just feel like doing the shows and doing the photo shoots and all that stuff like is sort of a hazard of the job in a way but it's also something I've learned to enjoy it's something I've learned like okay like I have debilitating stage fright and people used to always tell me like you just need to do it more and the more that you do it the better it'll get but it has never gotten better. There is like nothing, I'll be freaking out. It used to be like two or three days leading up to a show, I would just be like a wreck. Now it's like the day of mostly, but it's just, I feel like I'm at, at war with myself sometimes trying to like cajole myself into doing things that I'm like, split on you know it's like I want to do it I want to prove that I can do it I know that when it's done I'm gonna feel so good that I did it but like I have to do it and that's the scary part too I do you think it would be scarier if the drummer wasn't your husband do you think yes. it helps to have him so cool? oh yeah. yeah and I mean both Adam and Casey are bassist and guitarist like we're really good friends like we're, we all get along really well. We spend time together outside of making music. I always feel supported by them. Like they go out of their way to make sure I'm okay. You know, when we're gonna play shows, like they'll do things for me and be like, don't worry about putting your guitar down. I'll just take it from you. And you know, that helps so much. And just usually just seeing, like if I can find one friendly face in the audience, if I can find one person I know, then I'm like, all right. I know, I know I can do this now. There's also this idea that when you perform, that you're not really yourself, that you are a, pr a projection of yourself, mm -hmm. right? You're, a, it's like a persona, yeah. um, right? Like even, even David Bowie, as David Bowie was a persona because that wasn't even his real last name. And right. so when he, all those iterations of Bowie were iterations on iterations anyway. So he was, he was covered in terms of, um, there were so many layers to his persona yeah. that he was fully protected. Right. But do you feel that for you that you can, that might be a way of looking at it? Like when you're on stage, it's, it's you, of course, mm -hmm. but it's not really you. It's just stage version of you. I wish that I could get there. Um, I really feel like somehow I'm just kind of a, what you see is what you get person. Like I'm not very good at pretending and I feel almost like more exposed when I'm performing. Cause to me, that is like, that is the most vulnerable thing that I will ever share with strangers. And like, if they don't like it, 
yeah, sometimes I take it personally. And like, I know that nobody owes me any kind of allegiance to, you know, the art that I make. I know that once I let it out into the world, like it doesn't belong to me anymore. And like, you can do with it whatever you will. But like, there's still that part of me that's like, I'm like pouring my heart out here. And I just can't control what people think about it. It's scary. When I set out to try my hand at this, I think I thought it possible. And maybe it actually is. Just need a break from my inner voice. Cause I'm not. talked about the lead up like the two or three day lead up to a show <laughs> how is the aftermath like after a show what are you like do you just feel like oh my god it's over or do you do you start kind of doing a granular critical appraisal of what just happened yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah I I mean usually there's there's some euphoria just because I I did it I'm proud of myself when I when I conquer a fear because 
you know, it would be just as easy for me to be like, sorry, we don't play live shows. Um, but also it's just kind of like, I'm going over in my head, like the mistakes that I made or what I need to do differently next time or, you know, but yeah, mostly I like to, I like to just get out and chat with people after a show. Yeah. How is that? Do you, is that, does that feel really natural to you after a show to sort of talk to the fans? Sometimes it yeah. depends. Um, I, I do like it. I'm just always, I'm always amazed when anybody comes to see us play. Like I'm always amazed when anybody wants to buy our music or, you know, listen to something that I made when I was depressed sitting in my bedroom one day, you know, that really, I don't know if that will ever stop being cool to me. Um, so yeah, I'm always like curious how people made it out there, like how people heard about us or just meeting friends of friends, people that I wouldn't normally meet otherwise. Um, yeah, I enjoy it. But sometimes I'm like, I need Brian to be with me or something. <laughs> right, right. And also there's another way of looking at it, which is sort of like, yeah, it, you were depressed in your bedroom when you wrote that, but those mm -hmm. people were depressed in their bedroom when they heard it. And so you're not alone in the sense that there's a lot of people who've been, who've been and who are depressed in their bedroom. And I think that exactly. it's nice to have that kind of confederacy. I hope, I mean, I don't hope anyone is depressed in their bedroom, <laughs> but I hope that the things that I write are relevant to somebody else. Like sometimes we'll get a message from somebody who's like, I just like found your songs at a time when I really needed them you know, and that means the world to me. Like, I love, I love knowing that, you know, our songs are out there doing this cool job of like bolstering people's spirits or making people feel heard or understood, you know, because then I'm like, well, then suffering isn't in vain, you know, it can be used for something good. Yes. And suffering is rarely alone. Like, like you were mentioning Elliot Smith, depressed in a bedroom for sure. <laughs> right I mean definitely definitely I mean you hear those 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 songs and you just go wow I mean he is he is in the same place that I'm in in terms of wrestling with the big stuff you know yeah and I totally related to that you know yeah. and for a long time like I couldn't even write I couldn't write about things that I hadn't experienced personally it was like the only way that I could connect to a song for a while not so much anymore but that was like at the core when I started writing. Yeah, and the idea that art as an outlet to kind of alleviate anxiety, just that makes so much sense in my brain. Yeah, yeah, especially when you're just, you know, I feel like there's sort of a few ways you can go when you're writing a song. You can be like, I am writing this song for an intended audience. Or you can be like, I'm writing this song for myself or like I'm writing this song because I'm just really angry about this thing that happened and I just need to write it, you know? Yeah. And I think if you write, sometimes if you write songs that you don't really have like an idea of a demographic for or an audience for, but you just are writing for yourself, it's like, those are the real songs that people relate to because you're just being honest. And you're not like trying to curate, curate it for anybody. Yeah, that's so true. Um, I wanted to ask you about your health because you, you've been mm -hmm. very open about it, which I think is so yeah. helpful. 
um, you're open about everything, which I which I just uh, I just think is such a really powerful thing to do for your fans and for yourself and for people who who don't even know the work yet. Um, but you you've you've gone through it. <laughs> can, mm-hmm. can you just talk a little bit about what you're dealing with health wise and um, and so just so people understand what it is that you've been grappling. Sure. Um, so I have a rare genetic disease called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, and it's a connective tissue disorder. So basically like my collagen is defective. The connective tissues in my body are too loose and stretchy. So that causes a myriad of problems, um, from joint dislocations to digestive problems to, um, neurological problems. I have, um, a lot of what they would call comorbidities, which are, you know, all illnesses that fall under the umbrella of EDS. So it's, you know, it's EDS, but it's also postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and dysautonomia and mast cell activation syndrome and central sensitization syndrome. So um, I've obviously, it's a genetic disease. So I was born with it and I've always, you know, was hyper, hyper flexible when I was a kid and I started having um, chronic pain around 14 or 15 years old and started having chronic fatigue and not understanding why. Um, but I didn't actually get a proper diagnosis until October of 2020. Wow. Yeah. It was a long, a long search. That, yeah. Now, just out of curiosity, what is it? Is it dangerous to have not gotten that proper diagnosis? Is time a very um, valuable resource or is, is that not, not like that? Yes and no. Um, I think the benefit of getting a timely diagnosis is that you can um, understand your body better and understand the way that you need to treat it. Um, and not be doing the like weird party tricks that you would be doing for your friends, like, you know, gymnastic tricks and things like that. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, there's no cure. There's very, in my experience, not a lot of effective treatment. I've tried just about everything. I have spent so much money and time trying to, you know, figure it out, trying new therapies, trying vitamins, trying whatever. I've tried it all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I think in terms of just understanding yourself, because you do tend to just start to feel crazy when you're, you know, you've gone so long, just feeling horrible all the time and having like no validation. It's just really nice to, to be like, okay, I'm not crazy that's great to know yeah and all the medical words that you just mentioned a few minutes ago those all sound very serious like those sound like no joke um and so are there things that you need to be careful about like in other words like i'm not going to take a five mile hike in this heat or i'm not going to you know in other words ways to protect yourself um are there things that you recognize like i'm just not going to do that Oh, absolutely. I, I have essentially 
and what happens for a lot of people with EDS is they'll have a moment, an incident where something happens and it triggers your symptoms to like really flare. And that happened to me, I would say about four years ago. Um, I've always had, I have degenerative disc disease in my low back and arthritis. And I have a CARS defect, which is when a piece of your vertebrae uh, is broken off. And I've had like nerve issues and things from that. And I really, about four years ago, I threw my back out so bad that I couldn't sit up for more than like 10 seconds at a time. I was in excruciating pain. Like one day I just, I tried to stand up and I screamed and threw myself on the ground and like cried for an hour. My God. Um, but it took, it took like a couple months. I missed like a solid, like six weeks of work. And it took like a couple months before I could even like get a little of my mobility back. And I would say it's never been the same since. It's just been kind of like a snowball effect with, you know, sort of dominoes falling and things going wrong. And I would say I've built, I have had to build my life around being chronically ill, which has been such a bummer. I have been told, basically my doctors have told me, don't sit ever and like don't stand for more than a few minutes at a time and like don't walk for more than like 10 or 15 minutes at a time and you know you have to eat this really strict like very restrictive diet and you have to you know and all these things really are preventative or they just sort of prolong the inevitable you know you're trying to avoid having spinal fusion surgery and stuff before you have to and you know for people with EDS like we're resistant a lot of us are resistant to local anesthetic wow so like we don't want to have surgeries because we'll I'll go to the dentist and I can feel him drilling my teeth the whole time I'm there or you know whatever it is but it's really like every weird thing that is ever I've ever experienced in my life every weird symptom like every illness that I got that I got like every illness that ever came through the door growing up you know it all like it all makes sense now I mean don't sit don't walk don't stand that doesn't leave many alternatives <laughs> I mean what else is there Exactly. Like, okay, so I've basically been laying down for the last three years. Um, and it's, to me, I feel like the mental component of being chronically ill, the mental component of being in pain 24 hours a day is as bad, if not worse, as the actual physical symptoms of being sick. I so it's like, you know, maybe I'm doing what's good for my body by being a bump on a log all day, every day. But mentally, I'm like, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of that? It's so depressing. How do, and here I am making you talk about it. How, well, that's fine. I, I don't mind talking about it. How, how were you in when the, when the pandemic hit, knowing what we know about your health? Mm -hmm. How, how did that land for you in terms of feeling anxious about exposure? Because I would imagine in your condition that that would not be something you would want to get. 
No, and it could be as simple as like you get a cough and you throw your back out so bad that you can't walk, you know. Um, But honestly, you know, when quarantine came around, my life didn't really change. Like I've already basically been in quarantine for the past couple years before quarantine ever happened. So I felt oddly I was and I was happy. I was encouraged to know that like other people were experiencing what I had been going through. I was happy to not feel alone, you know. Um, so my thought has been more on the lines of like when all this is over and everybody just kind of goes back to living, I'll still be doing the same thing that I was doing before. And that to me will be like the harder part. I mean, obviously I'm happy that everybody else gets to, you know, go back to normal or whatever, but like this is normal and it's taken for me, like it's taken me a long time to accept that. When you think about a sweet nobody gig, given what you just told me, Mm -hmm. um, what are the limitations of a live performance and how how much are you risking by playing live? Um, it depends. It's with EDS, it's like you could wake up one morning and your ankle doesn't want to work. And like a half an hour later, your ankle's fine and your back doesn't work. Or, you know, you've subluxed a finger or a rib or whatever. Um, I feel like there are just risks to being alive when you have EDS. And so it's just a matter of like, what is worth the risk to me? Um, and like, after we rehearse, like, I usually have to take breaks at rehearsal, I'll wind up, you know, laying on the floor in our rehearsal space or something for a while. And, you know, we play shows, I feel like I can kind of compartmentalize it during a show because my adrenaline is like so high. But I would say like the day after a show, like I'll need, I'll need to rest for probably most of the day. I would imagine Brian is keeping a very watchful eye from behind the kit during a live gig that that you make sure you're doing okay. Yeah, I mean, I have braces I wear. I have like, I'm supposed to like brace every joint kind of, um, which is just like, okay, well, if it wasn't 110 degrees outside, then maybe I would, you know, wear two back braces and two wrist braces and ankle braces or whatever, but um. I mean, Brian trusts me to know what I can handle. I'm good about saying when I'm not okay. Yeah. And they're good about respecting that and listening to me. You know, I don't, I don't go on, go on with something if I feel like I'm gonna, if, if it's gonna be too much for me. Have you gotten better as you've gotten older with advocating for yourself and saying like, this is my limit. I'm not pushing past this. This is not good for me hundred percent because you have to you have to like there is just like there are limitations and like as I've gone through the past few years it's like my base level of pain has gotten higher and higher Mm -hmm. so now it's like most of the time my baseline of pain is around like a five with spikes up into the nines and tens during the day you know um so I don't know it just you just have to listen to yourself. You just, I mean, and I think even with, because it, from the time I found out what EDS was to getting a real diagnosis for it, it was eight years. 
Wow. It took eight years for me to find out about it and research it until I got a proper diagnosis. And that was because I happened to meet a couple people who had it and were like, hey, I think you have this disease. I think you should, you know, get tested. So I don't know. I think I think I just have to acknowledge it now. And I don't want it to run my life. Some days it does. Some days it doesn't. But like that is part of the reason it feels so important for me to fight through to do things that I actually want to do because I've had to sacrifice so many of those things. Like I can't just like sit and paint a picture. I'm like my fingers hurt and my back hurts. <laughs> like I can't, I mean, I can't just do things without thinking about what the cost is going to be but it's made me really good at setting limits. And with so many doctors I've seen over the years, I've had to learn to like be the squeaky wheel who calls the office and is like, do you have those test results yet? How about now? How about now? Um, so yeah, again, with the theme of being a persistent person, I think that's benefited me. Yeah, and, and, it's, and are there some days where you just go like, everything's actually okay today. Like today. Today is actually all right. Or is this something where it's literally like a chronic everyday situation? I would say I, I don't remember the last time I've had a pain-free day. It's been ah. probably five years at least. Um, maybe longer, maybe like 10, 15 years. Like when I, you know, when I, started it was mostly back pain but I was already having big issues with that in my late teens um but yeah I I would say that some days are definitely better than others but I I don't remember the last time I felt good really are you a part of a network of people who like a support group that of everyone who has the similar similar condition and they talk and yeah um there are support groups online. There are Instagram pages that you can go on. The thing that I like about it is that it's great if you have any kind of questions, like you can, people will be glad to give you input um, and to try to troubleshoot your issues. The thing that I don't love about it is when you get a community of people who collectively have been negle neglected and gaslit and ignored over, you know, it takes, I think, an average of eight years for a person with EDS to get a proper diagnosis. There are just so many people who are wounded and like clamoring to be heard. And it's really oddly competitive sometimes, but also it's just, it's a lot to take on. Like if you're holding that for for everybody in the group, you know, it's just really hard to like hear people's stories and to, to not apply it to your life and be like, okay, well, you know, you've been at this for X amount of years and you've never found anything that works or, you know, you've been doing this and it's only making things worse. You know, it's hard to hear those things. Yeah. Like I always try to answer questions for people when I think I can be helpful, but I try not to I try not to go on it too often just because it gets overwhelming. I would imagine, I would imagine so. 
Yeah, it's um, even though experience-wise, people may be dealing with the similar thing. Everyone it presents differently for everybody. Oh, way. Right? Yeah, and with EDS, it really is like it's different for every single person that has it. And there's like I don't know, thirteen or fourteen subtypes of it, so oh. it's just a lot. Um, how common is it? Just out of curiosity, is it a common? Thing? It's, a, it's still considered a rare disease. I think it's one in 5,000 people. Yeah. Um, but I suspect that a lot more people have it than are diagnosed with it. That's just my personal opinion. Um, in terms of the band, you, like you were saying, this record has been done for a while. Mm -hmm. um, is, and I, I imagine you've been very productive, is there another album in the can like do you, do you have you recorded another album or two um yeah I mean it's demoed pretty much the next album is completely demoed and the way that we work is like we arrange everything before we get to the studio like we know exactly what we're gonna do going in um I mean we might add something here or there but like pretty much like the arrangement is set in stone and we know like what kind of sounds we're going for and stuff ahead of time so we do have at least another album I have like a quite a big backlog of songs and then every year for Brian's birthday I make him a secret album so it's it's time it's secret album time of year <laughs> right now so that's keeping me busy how's the secret album coming along it's good I'm about halfway done I have five songs done um I can't tell you what it's about because he's sitting next to me yeah but um I usually I think this will be the fourth one um and I usually do I only write songs based on characters from movies that he likes or characters from books that he likes um I did like J.D. Salinger book uh his short stories his nine short stories nine stories yeah um last year and then one year uh I did the virgin suicides because Brian is like a big fan of that soundtrack that's one of his favorite soundtracks um and then the year before I think I just did kind of like a confetti of different movies we'd watched during the year and stuff but it's been really fun and like last year we got some of our friends to contribute well I got some of our friends to contribute tracks for it and things so it's a good challenge for me but it's also like no strings attached like I can do whatever I want like it just takes takes all the like scary part of songwriting away because I'm like well it's just for Brian you know yeah not just for Brian but like I know that I know that he's gonna like it. And actually one of the songs from a couple of years ago is on the album that's coming out in September. We wound up putting it on. Can we say what song? It's Rhoda. Mm. So that one was written about the bad seed, which is one of our favorite creepy movies we like to watch every year. <laughs> I think now what's happened for anybody listening that whoever has a partner or is in a, a marriage and they want to get a nice present for their partner, husband or wife, you've ruined it. Nobody can top something that lovely. I don't think anybody can do something that sweet and that thoughtful and that sentimental and that cool. Uh, well, I think it's kind of selfish because I really enjoy doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, we like, both 
I mean, if you were making somebody a quilt, I'm sure you enjoyed the process too, right? But yeah, as, as such a thoughtful and beautiful thing to do for someone that you love. I think that's just an incredible gesture. Yeah, like it just sort of became a thing by accident. I don't really remember what inspired me to do it in the first place. I think I was, he was out of town and I was staying with my parents for like a week. And I was like, I need something to do. Well, his birthday's coming up. Maybe I could write him a song, you know? And then I was like, maybe I could write a lot of songs and do some cover songs and get to experiment with things that I wouldn't normally do. And it was just fun. It just started out as a fun thing. He also had told me like, he really loves gifts. He likes getting things that are one of a kind, like that yeah. he knows nobody else in the whole world owns. So I was like, all right, well, that fits the bill. I love your band. And, I, and I'm and i so grateful that you are so honest and, and you're willing to talk about this stuff because I really do think it's helpful for people to hear this. I hope so. I mean, I I feel like, especially when you have like a rare disease, like I wanted to, I want people to know about it just because like, I know how painful it was to spend so long trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I always think like, maybe if one person hears this, like maybe they're like, hey, that's why I always dislocate my fingers or, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. And honestly, like, it's just part of me. It's part of my life. It's not my identity, but you know, if my experience is encouraging to somebody, then like I said, it's using something that sucks for good. And I'm cool with that, you know? nobody i love that band i really do they're they're so refreshing and they're so um you know in a in a very weird time that we're living in there's a buoyancy to their music even the stuff that is not maybe lyrically buoyant it still has this this hope to it and i'm crazy about it by the first album loud songs for quiet people and by the new album we're trying our best and by all the stuff in between sweet-nobody.bandcamp.com. Again, sweet-nobody.bandcamp.com. Go to my website, alexgreenonline.com. Find out what's happening with me. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor. I have to tweet more, I realize. I don't tweet that much. I need to be more active in the Twitter community. I think, or maybe I don't. I feel like I need to. I tweet uh, so infrequently that me telling you to follow me on Twitter feels like I'm luring you into a, uh, to a, a, an orchard of emptiness. It's not that bad. I'm going to be very active lately. Just get ready for me being super Twitter engaged, okay? So it'll be worth your time. Instagram, I'm way more productive on Instagram. If one were grading me, I'd have a, what, a C plus on Twitter. Instagram, I'm going with an A. I'm giving myself an A. I can self-grade on social media. Uh, Instagram, at Ember's Podcast. Follow me there. Do both and compare. Average it together, what, B plus? That's not so bad. You can also email me, 
editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Follow Bombshell Radio by going to BombshellRadio.com and see what makes our radio station tick. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. We're now on Amazon, by the way, Amazon Podcasts and Audible. That's our latest addition to our platform arsenal. So go to the one that you use, subscribe, tell a friend, rate, review, all that stuff. We really appreciate it. Thank you, as always, for listening to our show week in and week out. Let's close the program with the new song by Sweet Nobody, a fuller listen to Five Star Diary. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast, only on Bombshell Radio.